few books are as fundamental to the Christian faith as the book of Exodus. Exodus not only teaches us about the redemption of God's people, Israel, but it also provides us with a paradigm for understanding God's future redemption of humanity. The people of Israel were physically enslaved in Egypt. Humanity today is spiritually enslaved to sin. We're all in need of redemption. God redeemed Israel, enabling them to cross over out of Egypt. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are all enabled to cross over into life from our sin. When we understand the book of Exodus, we understand God, his grace, and ultimately our redemption. Do you remember the first time you ever read the Bible? Chances are the first time that you read the Bible, you turned to a book that you thought had meaning and value, or someone told you this is where you should start. Many people, when you're reading the Bible for the very first time, you're starting in somewhere like the Gospel of John, and you're reading about the person of Jesus or the story of Jesus, his miracles and his teachings, and maybe the first time that you read the Gospel of John or one of the other Gospels or one of Paul's letters, you are reading these things and these stories and you're amazed because you've never read the Bible before. And you maybe have heard things about Jesus, but you've never read it for yourself before. And so you're reading about Jesus and you're reading the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And these things are new and they're fresh. And as you're reading that, you're thinking to yourself, man, the Bible is incredible. It is this resource and this tool that God has given me that I never expected. And then maybe you jump into some sort of Bible reading plan where you're going through the entire book of the Bible or the, all the books of the Bible and you get to like the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know if you know how the beginning of Matthew begins, but it's so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so begat so-and-so. And immediately you're like, wait, not everything's like the Gospel of John. <laughs> or you're in the Old Testament and you read through Genesis and Genesis is great because it's stories, but then you get to the book of Leviticus <laughs> and you're like, well, maybe I can just skip this month and move on to like whatever I'm supposed to read the next month. That's where we're going to be today. Not the book of Leviticus, but in the book of Exodus as we continue crossover. And we're going to be looking at three chapters today. Now, I'm not going to read all of them. In fact, I'm barely going to read the three chapters. I thought we're studying the book of Exodus, kind of, today. Exodus 25 through 27, we're going to be reading about something essential to the people of Israel, the tabernacle. Now, here's the thing. When you get to a book like Leviticus or you get to parts of the Bible like Exodus 25 and you read about things that you think have no meaning or value to you, the reason is because when you're reading scripture, you're thinking about the things that matter to you in your life and in your day. You're like, maybe you're fighting loneliness or you're fighting fear or anxiety or you're wondering, wondering if there's meaning in life or if there's any sort of hope and you get to a passage like Exodus 25 through 27 and you're reading about the tabernacle and you're thinking to yourself what in the world does this have to do with the fear that I'm struggling with 
What in the world does the tabernacle have to do with the kind of hope that I want to have deep inside of me? How does the Ark of the Covenant instill in me any sort of hope in life? Right? What, what do all these pigeons and doves and all of these sacrifices have to do with anything of substance? And what I want you to think about today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of going verse by verse through Exodus 25 through 27, what we're going to do is we're going to lay out a biblical theology of something that is of value to your life, that gets at things like loneliness and fear and anxiety and meaninglessness and hopelessness. It's called the presence of God. Because at the core, the tabernacle is about the presence of God in the life of Israel. And while there might not be a literal physical tabernacle in our day, the presence of God is real and near for his church and his people. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the big idea that I want you to get today. The Lord has always made a way for his presence to be near us. For heaven to meet earth. I want you to think about that. For heaven to meet earth. God has always been about his presence being in our midst. So quickly, turn to Exodus 25. If you have a Bible and you're new to the Bible, that is towards right there in the beginning, Genesis and then Exodus. And all I want to do is I want to give you a brief overview of what's going on in these three chapters. And my encouragement to you this week is to go home and actually read Exodus 25 through 27. And perhaps as you're reading this week, this is going to make a whole lot more sense because of what we're talking about today. Exodus 25 begins by talking about the people of Israel being called by God to bring their contributions, the stuff that they have to make the tabernacle. And what you're going to find in Exodus 25 through 27 is we're working our way from the inside out. Okay, everybody say inside, inside. out. Inside out. So Exodus 25 begins with the inside, the holy of holies, the most holy place. We read about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is essential to the tabernacle. Why? It is where the presence of God dwelt. So you're in the most holy place and you're in the Ark of the, with the Ark of the Covenant and then you move out just a bit. And when you move out just a bit, you move from the most holy place to the holy place which is the outer part of the tabernacle. And there you find what Exodus 25 talks about, the table for bread and the golden lampstand, also known as a menorah. So you see that. So then you move out from the most holy place and the holy place to the outer courts of the tabernacle. So if you look at Exodus 26, you learn about how the people of Israel are to make the tabernacle. And so you begin to see all of the outer parts of the tabernacle. In chapter 27, 
you get beyond the tabernacle to that outer court and you read about, if you just look at the headings, the bronze altar. The bronze altar was the place where sacrifices were made for the people of Israel. And you read about that. Then you read about the court of the tabernacle, the area surrounding the tabernacle where the bronze altar was. And then Exodus 27 concludes with a discussion about oil for the lamp, which is in the holy place, the menorah or the lampstand. Now, like I said, what I want to do for you today is I want to give you kind of a biblical theology of God's presence where heaven meets earth, where God has always wanted his presence to dwell with us. And so here's what I want you to see first. The Lord wants heaven on earth. Amen? The Lord wants heaven on earth. Now, in order to give you a biblical theology of God's presence, we have to begin where? In the beginning. So in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, look at what we read, verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a what? In where? He planted a garden in Eden. Probably every single one of you are familiar with that language. You don't even have to read the Bible to know about the Garden of Eden. But I want you to keep it in mind that there was a place called what? Eden. And inside Eden, there was what? A garden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made spring every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's a garden. Inside the garden, there are two trees. The garden are the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God placed the man, Adam, to work and cultivate the land. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Genesis 3 is where this creation story kind of turns the wrong way. And we read about the enemy, the serpent, the devil coming into the garden. But before we do that, look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the what? presence they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you and assumed in Genesis chapter 3 is this reality that God dwelt with Adam and Eve that God walked in their midst regularly that his presence was unhindered to his creation, Adam and Eve, the first humans on earth. So we see at this very beginning that the Lord wants heaven on earth. A simple way to think about this is this way. The garden is the first tabernacle. The garden is the first tabernacle. I want you to think about it like this. I shared with you just a moment ago about how the tabernacle was constructed, that 
the, the tabernacle itself was two rooms. There was a smaller room, which was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then inside that, there was a larger room where it was the holy place where the priests could go and minister. And then outside of the tabernacle was the court surrounding the tabernacle. Why is this important? Because I want you to see how the garden and how Eden and how creation was set up. Because inside Eden was what? The garden, right? Inside Eden was the garden. And there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The people, Adam and Eve, could eat from the tree of life. It gave them life. They couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then outside of the garden, surrounding the garden is what? Eden. And then surrounding Eden is the rest of creation. Does not that three-part building kind of sound familiar? See, the Garden of Eden was the first tabernacle. Just as the outer court there was with the tabernacle, there was all of creation. And just as there was a tabernacle, there was Eden. And just as there was a holy place, there was a garden. And Adam was understood to be the first priest. In Genesis, it talks about how God placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, you will find that language of work and keep to be associated less with farming and more with what the priests were called to do. As if it was a priestly function. The interesting thing is that just as the Garden of Eden faced east, guess what else faced east? The tabernacle. So God sets all of this up and his presence is there. He's walking in its midst. Life is given because there is the tree of life there where they find the presence of God. The garden was the first tabernacle. I want you to think about like this. Have you ever seen a Venn diagram before? If not, you're going to see one that I created this week. I'm awfully proud of this artwork. You'll see it there on the screen. Listen, I'm just telling you, my creativity doesn't move much past this. And this took me about 30 minutes to figure out how to make on my computer. So be very proud of me. But this is the way I think that we should understand the presence of God. On one sense, you have heaven. You have where God dwells. And in another sense, you have earth where we dwell. And in the Garden of Eden, you have this place where heaven and earth meet. Now, take this and swipe out Eden and put tabernacle, and you have the same sort of idea and imagery. This is what the Bible wants us to understand about the presence of God. That what God has always wanted is for heaven to meet earth. And in his creation, there are points in creation and history where heaven meets earth. In Genesis, it is in the Garden of Eden. In the Old Testament, it is in the tabernacle. It is in what's known as the temple. It's where these two places begin to meet. So what about then the tabernacle? If the Lord wants heaven on earth. What we see in the tabernacle is that the Lord recreates heaven on earth. I want you to take 
particular look at verses 8 and 9 of Exodus 25. I know, that's the only two verses in these three chapters we're going to read today. But I want you to see what God tells Moses as they're about to create the tabernacle. He says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the what? Everybody say it. Pattern. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The tabernacle was a model. It was a pattern. So the tabernacle was a model, a model of what? Number one, it was a model after the garden. I want to show you an image, a depiction of what the tabernacle probably looked like. You can see inside that tent, that's the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. You can see that smaller room, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. You can see the larger room, the holy place, and you can see the court surrounding the tabernacle. And I want to briefly just outline for you what's going on in these different rooms. Well, number one, in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant. You have the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. Again, very similar to the garden. In fact, do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they, God threw them out of the garden? Do you remember what was guarding the garden? Cherubim. Do you happen to know what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. Both symbolizing the presence of God. Outside of the most holy place, you can kind of see it in the tabernacle, that table with bread. That was the table of presence. And there the priests would make bread and place bread before God. And that bread was a symbol of God providing for the priests to have food. Which did not God do that in the garden. He placed them in the garden and there was the tree of life where they could eat from and be sustained. There was the golden lampstand on the other side of the tabernacle, the menorah that provided light. The way that the image is described in Genesis and in Exodus is this same language of God placing the stars in the sky to light the night. Or you could look at the menorah or the lampstand as a symbol of the tree of life, providing light and life to the people. Again, we've talked about the tabernacle being a symbol of creation and Eden and the garden. We've got that. There's the bronze altar on the outside where the sacrifices were made. It's interesting that the tabernacle, if you read the description, the tabernacle was supposed to be made of gold and precious stones and fine linen. Very similar language to what is found in Eden and in the garden. The tabernacle, I think, is best to be understood like a mobile home for God. Now, I want you to be careful here because we're not talking about God roughing it. Are you familiar with glamping? Right? The tabernacle is like God glamping. 
where he is able, his presence is able to be mobile. As the people move, God is able to move with him and be near them and be present with them. That's what the tabernacle offered. It was a model after Eden, but it was also a model after heaven. What do I mean? In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us something about the tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. It's talking about the tabernacle and Moses and the priest. And it says, they serve a what? A copy. Everybody say it. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, this should sound very familiar, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. If you want to keep reading about this, look at Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 and Hebrews 9, 23. What, what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that the pattern that God showed Moses in how to construct the tabernacle was what? Heaven. That Moses got a glimpse of the dwelling place of God in heaven. It was a pattern by which he was to construct the whole tabernacle. Another way to think about this is what we see is that the garden was like a prototype of what heaven is. And the tabernacle was like 2.0 of that prototype. So God wanted heaven on earth. He recreates heaven on earth. But then number three, the Lord sent heaven to earth. Read about this. I mentioned earlier the gospel of John. John begins his gospel in chapter one. It says the word dwelt among men. That he became flesh. That word, in fact, dwell is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for tabernacle. And then we read about this in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders and he says this. Jesus answers them, destroy this what? Everybody say it. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You ever seen somebody just like completely miss it? That's the religious leaders. I mean, it is just whew, over their heads. Right? The temple that they thought Jesus was referring to was Herod's temple. The temple that had replaced Solomon's temple and the temple that had been rebuilt after the people of Israel had been driven out of the land and everything in Jerusalem destroyed. Herod came and he built this grand temple. And it took Herod 46 years to finish this temple. And Jesus says, listen, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. See, what Jesus is getting at is that Jesus is the new temple. It's where heaven meets earth. Remember my, my artwork just a few moments ago? The, the Venn diagram? Again, you could take out Eden. You could take out Tabernacle. And what would you put there? Jesus. 
See, Jesus is the point, the place, the person where heaven meets earth. Jesus is the one who takes over the function of the temple. He takes over the function of the temple by being the presence of God in creation, but also the tabernacle and the temple, that was the place where sins were taken care of. That's the place where the reason God's presence was able to dwell was because he was a holy God and he was providing a way for sin to be taken care of so that an unholy people could dwell with a holy God. And in Jesus, it's not only that the presence of God is able to dwell where heaven meets earth, but it's also where our sin, humanity's sin, our shortcomings, the way that we mistreat God and mistreat our brothers and sisters is taken care of. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you tear down this temple or if you kill me, if you crucify me, three days later, I'll do what? Raise it up. Resurrect from the dead. See, what Jesus is getting them to understand and his disciples to understand is that Jesus had to come. The presence of God had to come and he had to die. He died for not his sins, but the sins of humanity. And he had to raise from the grave, bringing life that the presence of God could still dwell in the midst of earth and that we as unholy people could dwell with the holy God. And so for Jesus to die and for Jesus to rise allows the presence of God to dwell on earth and by the way for us to dwell with God. And Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new temple, a new creation. The way Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus is he describes it to farming. He says Jesus and his resurrection, it's the first fruits. Meaning there's going to be more. And the more includes who? Us. So a new presence. Jesus is dwelling with us, but his, his resurrection depicts and shows and points to a new creation where there's a new heaven and a new earth. And we become new people with new bodies where we are able to dwell with God. Presence. So the Lord wants heaven on earth. He recreates heaven on earth. He sends heaven to earth. But this is where this leaves us. The Lord's heaven is expanding on earth. I want to take you to one of Paul's letters. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And I just want you to, I want you to listen to some of the language, the words that Paul uses. And he's... he's decisive in the words that he chooses. This isn't accidental. He's, he's being intentional. He says this, so then you, he's talking to the Ephesians, the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he begins all of this language by talking about family. He said, you're not a stranger. You're not an alien. You are now members of the household of God. You are family. But then the, il- the illustration, the metaphor changes. He says this in verse 20, built. What do you build? Buildings, right? Structures, temples, built 
on the foundation. When you build a building, do you have to have a foundation? Yeah, in Louisiana, what do we do? We build our foundation on pilings. You got to have a foundation. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the what? Cornerstone. When you build a building, typically the first block that is laid is the cornerstone. Jesus himself being that cornerstone in whom the whole structure, again, the whole building being joined together, that joined together verb, that is like architectural language, building language, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy what? Temple, a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together. Church, you are being built together into a dwelling place. For God, by the Spirit. See, what Paul tells us is that, yes, Jesus was where heaven and earth met. But we also know that Jesus left earth, that he ascended after his resurrection back to the Father, and he tells his apostles in the book of Acts that it is good for him to go away because if he goes away, then the Father will send who? The Holy Spirit. And we know in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes down and enters his church. And what Paul tells us in places like Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians is that the church then becomes the what? The temple, the dwelling place of God. And yes, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's a reality that each one of you as individuals... You are the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit is in you. But here's the thing. The argument that Paul is trying to make is not just that you as an individual are the dwelling place of God, but that the church together is the dwelling place of God. So when we, as the body of Christ, are together, the presence of God is here dwelling in us and in our midst. And part of what Paul is getting at, and honestly what the whole New Testament is getting at, is that the church's responsibility, our responsibility, is to be extending God's presence into all of creation. Think about it like this. Go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to work it and keep it. But do you think they were meant to stay in the garden? No. The garden was a great place. The tree, of, the tree of life was there. God was walking in their midst. His presence was there. But the point of Adam and Eve was to extend the garden out into the rest of creation. Because if the garden is extended to the rest of creation, who's there? God. So in the same way, you and I as followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit and experience the manifest presence of God when we dwell together, the point is not for us to keep the Holy Spirit here. It's not for us to say, listen, we just need to stay together and make sure every time we're together, we're the only ones experiencing the presence of God. But rather, we know that in our life and in our world, there is space beyond this building and there are people beyond our lives that lack what? The presence of God. 
And so the Holy Spirit is given to us. Not just that we would know the presence of God, not just that we would have a relationship with God, but that we could take that presence and that relationship and begin to give it to others. This is why we serve people. This is why we meet tangible physical needs. This is why we share the gospel with people. This is why we tell people about Jesus. Because what we want them to understand is that the meaninglessness that they're feeling, the hopelessness that they have, the fear and anxiety that they live with, there's an answer to that. Because they weren't created, we weren't created to live in fear and to have anxiety. We weren't created to feel lonely. We weren't created to be and feel meaningless. And we weren't created to not have hope. But all of those things are not remedied until you have who? God. Until you have the presence of God. So look, the, the thing about extending the presence of God and sharing the gospel is it's not necessarily that we're trying to, to, to make converts and proselyte, but it's that we have something that every person needs. So why wouldn't we want to go tell people that, look, God created you for you to have his presence. But you know as well as I do that every single one of us are imperfect people. And so let me tell you about how God, the creator of the universe, made a way for us to have his presence. He sent his presence in the person of Jesus. And Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, and he rose to give us life. And now, because of Jesus, we can have the presence of God, not just with us, but everywhere dwelling in us and dwelling in his church and extending out into all of creation. That's why we tell the good news of Jesus. I think what the Bible wants us to understand is that the local church should be like an embassy of heaven. And the point is that everywhere we go, we would be working to build embassies. Not, I'm not talking about literal, physical embassies, but outposts of God's presence. That regardless of where you're at in all of the world, you know where you can turn to find God. Because you know that right there in that place, there is a body of Christians called the church. And if you're searching for God, you know where you can find him. That's what the New Testament teaches us about the church. So we began this journey in the beginning. And I think it's appropriate that we finish this journey in the end. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no what? And I saw no what? Temple. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In the end, there will be no need for God to have a place to dwell.
There will be no need for a tabernacle. There will be no need for a temple. Because God's presence will dwell in our midst unhindered. Remember the Venn diagram? The two circles where there's heaven and there's earth and it's either Eden or the tabernacle or Jesus or the church. Well, let me show you what this Venn diagram is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like this. Where heaven and earth dwell together. This is God's vision for creation. This is the point of Exodus 25 through 27. Don't get so caught up and lost in all of those little details that you forget the point is that God wants to dwell with man. That God wants heaven and earth to meet. Don't get lost in the fact that, yes, people struggle with loneliness, but we're not alone. Don't get lost in the fact that there's a lot of fear and anxiety that drives all of us, but we can have peace. Don't get lost in the fact that there's meaningless all around us and we experience that, but we can have meaning. Or that so many of us struggle with hopelessness, but we can have hope. And the reason that we can have all of those things is because the presence of God is near. Because the creator of the universe and the creator of you and I, he wants to be close. The Lord has always made a way for his presence to be near us. For heaven, everybody say heaven, to meet earth. Everybody say earth. For heaven to meet earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises. But from before time, you were good and loving and gracious and merciful. And that from the beginning of creation, Father, your heart and your desire was always for you to dwell with us and for us to dwell with you. And while we have tried in many different ways to mess that up, you always make a way. Help us to not only understand your presence, but to find comfort and hope in the fact that you dwell with us and in the fact that one day your presence will be here with us. We love you. And we thank you for loving us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.